0: Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount
1: Tire. Hi, I'm Marie Cox, and this is With Friends Like These. We're going to end our trilogy on law and forgiveness, focusing a little more on the actual nuts and bolts of what forgiveness by the state or by a government would look like. Or as the book by this week's guest puts it. When should the law forgive? Our guest is Martha Minow, a professor at Harvard Law School and a TED Talk speaker and an Obama administration appointee. She's written on a lot of topics of interest to this audience, how technology can exacerbate inequality, for instance, and the law and mental health. But I wanted to talk to her about forgiveness because of the legal approach that she suggests. What if we treated those who break the law with the same generosity we treat the bad behavior of corporations? More specifically, what if we took our approach to financial fresh starts after bankruptcy and applied it to those who need a fresh start after a criminal offense? On the way to discussing that idea, she engages with the problem of child soldiers. It all works together. Talking about child soldiers gives us a chance to think through our biases against other kinds of bad actors, those who aren't children. And that discussion also challenges us to rethink the ambiguous gift of Blanket Forgiveness. This is important, hard stuff, and Martha Minow is coming right up. Martha, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you. Great to be here.
1: So I want to dive right in. Why forgiveness?
0: I've been working on issues of responses to mass atrocity, genocide, and wrote a book about alternatives to war or to indifference, and uh, called it Between Vengeance and Forgiveness. And I actually had the opportunity to speak around the world about it. And the repeated question, whether I was in China, or I was in Alabama, was why an alternative to forgiveness? Why can't law itself forgive? And that got me going. Um, And as The attention rightly has turned to mass incarceration in this country and also the 2008 financial disaster and the sequels from that. Um, Forgiveness really, I think, ought to be on the agenda much more.
1: Did you learn anything about forgiveness in writing this? Like, did you come up with some answers? Why should the law forgive?
0: You know, it's unusual to ask about an institution like law to forgive. So much of the attention to forgiveness is interpersonal. But what I learned is that there are many tools within American law and other legal systems to forgive. You know, pardons have become far more uh, uh, in the public eye than they used to be. And that's an obvious example. But debt forgiveness uh, and commutations of sentences, these are less well known. Uh, And also the restorative justice movement, which has really taken off in many parts of the country, but it still hasn't come up to a public consciousness in many places. So there are more tools. That's what I learned and more interest in it um, than I could have imagined.
1: Let's talk about restorative justice. That comes up uh, in your book a lot in the context of child soldiers, which is one of your sections. Which I I confess, like I did not realize the magnitude of the child soldier problem. Still,
0: no, it's very true. And, and in many places in the world right now, where there are armed conflicts, and certainly over the past decade or two, the recruitment or abduction of children uh, to become soldiers to become part of armed conflict is a major strategy. In part, it's a Strategy of terrorizing a civilian population. In part, it's literally filling the personnel problems. Young people are more manipulable. Young people are more obedient. Um, and uh, what happens then? You know, if there is a moment of transition, if there's a possibility of reclaiming uh, peace, what happens to a young person who participated in atrocities or who supported those who who do? What happens to their culpability, their accountability, their possibilities for building a new life. So it is a big issue. It's an issue right now in Colombia. And conflicts go on for so long that someone may have started as a child and end up in a position of authority, but certainly as an adult. What happens then?
1: Yeah, i, I it, it's my bleeding heart showing that when I started this chapter, I was kind of in the position of, well, of course, we should forgive them. They're children. But you Complicate that.
0: There are complicating factors that include you know those who are quote unquote voluntary uh, recruits who who leave home in order to join a cause they believe in or to have opportunities that they didn't have at home. You know anyone who's parented a teenager knows that there's a fair amount of deliberateness and agency. Uh, And to say, oh, well, they just had no choice is not exactly right. On the other hand, to say they had full choice is also not exactly right. They're operating in a world designed by, created by, created for adults. Uh, And so finding something other than the on-off switch of culpability um, is, is, I think, the appropriate question. I think for many of these individuals, finding a way that they can reckon with what they've done. Is important. So a full pass that says, "Well, you're innocent. You had no agency," doesn't actually help that individual. Um, and and many have actually said, "You know, I do have to pay amends." And then there's the difficulties of the international community coming in and offering educational resources and counseling for those individuals, and not for those who did not participate in the armed conflict. So there's inequity uh, problems altogether. And one more I'll just add is uh, the receiving community, the extended family um, may resist uh, welcoming back or integrating a former child soldier if there isn't some form of accountability, some process to mark what happened, some ritual.
1: You point out that actually psychiatric care might more do more harm than good in some situations for those child soldiers to be given? I guess, is this in the context of special treatment or is it in the context of they're given sort of Western psychiatric care, but their reentry into their community needs to be different?
0: Right. Well, I mean, we just have we just have to acknowledge that uh, psychiatric care is, has had psychological Uh, intervention that has developed in the West has ideas about individuality, uh, ideas about uh, blame, ideas about religion that may not even be familiar to the individuals involved. Also, this is actually a major problem for dealing with uh, teens anywhere. Uh, We talk in criminal law about rehabilitation. That implies that someone once was in a state we want to return them to, for many of these young people, they were not in that state uh, and uh, psychiatric services that help someone heal when they didn't actually have the chance to build the armature of their personality, of their belief system. It's, it's just not the right intervention.
1: You write that laws don't have a category for those who are victims and perpetrators
0: really true. You know, maybe it's because particularly Western law uses an adversary system that you're on one side or the other. Um, We don't have a way to think about someone who has both experiences. I mean, to some extent, we introduce it in the idea of a defense to uh, criminal charges, you know, had duress, but it doesn't quite get at the fullness of a situation where someone actually participated in violence because they were starving or because someone else was pointing a gun at them or because they were um, hoping that it would lead to a better life. Uh, and many child soldiers build their deep relationships with their captors or their bosses. Um, and you know they're all intertwined with the victimization and the support of the adult in their life. Um, so very, very complicated. And, and I also think not so terribly different for the experience of some members of gangs in the United States. Um, And I think there are lessons to be drawn by the comparison.
1: I think so too. So part of me doesn't want to continue just in the specific vein of child soldiers, but I think there's just one more complicated factor. I want to make sure that we hit, which is that in even just our conversation so far, the focus has kind of been on the child soldier, like that person you're going to forgive or not forgive, but you don't necessarily, it's not necessarily true that forgiving someone is the right thing to do. That there are cases where re, you, the quote I love that you have is resistance to forgiveness is an expression of dignity.
0: Right. So, this is something I really learned talking with a lot of people in a lot of different circumstances uh, about the pressure that's placed on victims expecting them to forgive. Sometimes it's uh, cultural pressure. Sometimes it's gender-based. Women are expected to forgive more often. Um, And forgiveness, don't get me wrong. I obviously think it's a resource. It's a tool. It's a way that societies learn to live uh, after really harmful experiences. But the pressure that's put on a victim to forgive can be a new kind of forgiveness. And also something that's called forgiveness that comes under duress, that isn't forgiveness. Forgiveness is letting go of justified uh, claims of resentment or blame. And if if someone does that or a society does that because they didn't have a choice, that's not really letting go. That's another, again, victimization.
1: And I wonder if it's also true, and I think you talk a little bit about this, that sometimes the person who, who might be the target of the forgiveness, it is actually good for them to maybe... Have to live with not being forgiven, that there is a power to that as well.
0: You know, I think learning to live with the fact that one has done something terribly wrong may be the first step or important step to integrating that into uh, what their vow is for the future. Um, And I think just wiping the slate clean without any kind of accounting doesn't allow that kind of foundation
1: building for a new life. And we'll be back with Martha Minow in a minute. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment all in one place. At Audible, you can find the largest selection of audiobooks, ranging from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, languages, business, motivation, and more original content from top celebrity creators and thousands of popular and binge-worthy podcasts. As an Audible member, you will get one credit every month, good for any title in their entire premium selection. That means the latest bestseller, the buzziest new release, the hottest celebrity memoir, and that bucket list title you've been meaning to pick up. Those titles are yours to keep forever in your Audible library. And Audible members don't have to worry about using their credits right away. You can keep your credits for up to a year and then use them to binge on a whole series if you want. And if you're not loving your selection, you can swap it for another. Like a lot of people, I use audiobooks as a kind of comfort listen. And there are audiobooks I listen to multiple times because I love the story And it's familiar, and it kind of just puts me in a better place. Now, unlike most people, probably, Stephen King is one of my comfort listens. And I've been going back to The Shining and Dr. Sleep like multiple times in the past couple years, and I plan to start Salem's Lot next. King books make great, great audiobooks, it turns out. They're kind of creepier that way. Now, you will also get full access to the popular Plus Catalog. It's filled with thousands and thousands of audiobooks, original entertainment, guided fitness and meditation, sleep tracks for better rest, and podcasts, including ad-free versions of your favorite shows and exclusive series. All are included with your membership so you can download and stream all you want no credits needed. You can always find the perfect title for whatever you're doing, wherever you're going, or whatever you're feeling, whether it's comedy, romance, suspense, true crime, science fiction, or fitness and wellness. With everything you love to listen to all in one app. Audible is your playlist for life. Try Audible for free for 30 days by visiting audible.com/friends or text friends to 500-500. That's audible.com/friends or text friends to 500500. 500. With Friends Like These is brought to you by BetterHelp. Is thinking about that list stressing you out? Is trying to choose one thing that interferes with your happiness actually something interfering with your happiness? And how can anyone pick between global pandemic and chronic isolation? A lot of things are interfering with our happiness. But... BetterHelp won't make you choose. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You connect in a safe and private online environment, making it convenient, and you can begin in under 24 hours. It's not self help, it's professional counseling. Send a message to your counselor anytime, and you'll get a quick and thoughtful response. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. The service is available for clients worldwide, and it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, though financial aid is available. They have therapists with a broad range of expertise, which may not be locally available in your area. There are licensed professional counselors who specialize in depression, anger, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, and trauma. Anything you share is confidential. You can check out the testimonials posted daily to their site. And in fact, so many people have begun using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a better life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com friends. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, betterhelp.com slash friends. And let's move back to the parallels between child soldiers and uh, young people who participate in gang violence. Do you feel like that's a pretty direct uh, link there that we maybe just should do very similar things with the children that are caught up in violence here?
0: I know it's a surprising comparison. Uh, There are obviously many, many, many differences, but I was struck by kind of dimensions of similarities I hadn't even imagined. Like the development of lightweight, cheap guns absolutely influenced the recruitment of child soldiers in armed conflicts around the world, and also the recruitment of younger and younger people to participate in the drug trade. Uh, That was a point of comparison I'd never imagined. Uh, and, And another is the um, the, the importance of the peer group and the members of the uh, violent activity um, as becoming the family for the relevant young person and the points of reference. Uh, and then one more, the, this, this identity as both a victim and a perpetrator. Um, I think that part is uh, remarkably similar. Um, what seems incredibly different is, at least in the international community, there's a lot of talk about the innocence Of the child soldiers. And we don't have that language in the United States talking about teens who participate in uh, the drug trade or violence or gang activity. We don't talk about their innocence.
1: I think that's a huge irony and it's true that you could find sort of your average American and talk to them about child soldiers and they'd be full of empathy full of sympathy talking. Yes, we should do restorative justice. But then if you say, well, what about in Chicago? You know, should we do it there? There's a little more resistance, a lot, I'm actually, a lot more resistance.
0: <laughs> a lot more. And, you know, and some may be unfamiliarity with what restorative justice is or can be. There actually are some initiatives in Chicago, my hometown, uh, that are involving restorative justice. The key point is to try to focus on the future and to involve the offender in constructing a better future uh, and to attend to both the interpersonal level and the larger structural causes of why there was some violation. Um, And I think that restorative justice has a lot of promise, not just for young people, but for our handling of wrongdoing generally.
1: I, I was going to ask you that, that something that kept coming to me in reading this section about child soldiers, and especially when you expanded it to think about uh, the children who are involved in violence here in un- the United States was why stop at children?
0: I love this question. And uh, there are at least uh, three ways to respond to it. One is that the development of what we call maturity or adulthood takes a lot longer than any of these artificial uh, age periods, whether it's 16 or 18 or even 21. And in the uh, briefs submitted to the United States Supreme Court on the issues of the death penalty uh, vis-a-vis minors or even uh, uh, being incarcerated without the chance of parole for someone who committed a crime as a minor. The research is so powerful that for many young people, especially uh, males, there isn't the the, the connections of the different parts of the brain and the nervous system until around 25, maybe 28. Is there any point in people's lives that they are no longer subject to outside pressure that determines in in an important way the choices they make? I don't know at that point. I think everyone is influenced to some degree or another. Uh, And depending on their social situation, they may have more degrees of freedom or fewer. Um, So that's a second response is kind of uh, saying that there's something false and imagining that there are two kinds of people, people who are influenced and people who are not influenced. Uh, And the third kind of response um, actually says that there is a, a way to think about responsibility over a developmental course, that people learn how to take responsibility and be held responsible. And that takes time. There's not an automatic cutoff. But it does grow over time that the uh, every society, uh, whatever age or whatever uh, steps of life they they make significant, um, actually treats people who have had more chance to develop more
1: accountable. So, you know, my question out of that, right, is, is restorative justice. Yay, we should do that for kids. Why not for everyone? Oh, I'm so
0: glad you're pointing that out. In fact, there are increasing uses of restorative techniques alongside, or even integrated into a criminal prosecution approach. You know, I know about a case where, you know, sadly uh, a robbery gone wrong, uh, the victim hit his head and he died. So the offender was charged with uh, with manslaughter. And uh, while the prosecution uh, was uh, going on, there was investigation and so forth. Um, there was a restorative justice process that brought together uh, the offender with the the survivors of the victim. Um, And they actually explained to each other what had happened and there was a process of apology and forgiveness and the prosecutor heard about it and reduced um, the time of the sentence that was uh, negotiated ultimately in light of that. That's an example of a, a kind of integration that I think is interesting. Um, you know, we have a strong movement in this country to have more attention to victims and uh, victim impact statements being an example. I, I like this approach much better than a victim impact statement, which seems to turn on the eloquence of anyone's particular victim, which is kind of happenstance and maybe quite inequitable. But giving a chance for the offender and those who really are still struggling with what happened to, to account to each other. Um, and to engage in the human rituals of apology and forgiveness, um, that I think can be
1: very healing for for people on all sides. Here's the last ad break. I'm excited to tell you about our new sponsor, Nebbia, backed by some of the biggest names in Silicon Valley, including Tim Cook. It's designed by former Tesla, NASA, and Apple engineers who spent years researching and developing a superior shower experience that saves water and is anything but ordinary. The Nebbia by Moen Spa Shower is Nebia's most advanced shower yet, with twice the coverage and half the water usage of standard shower heads. Despite using 45% less water, its spray is 81% more powerful than the competition, and it's easy to install. Nebbia by Moen can be installed in 15 minutes or less without the need for contractors, plumbers, or broken tile. If you can change a light bulb, you can install Nebbia by Moen. Nebbia balances functionality with a clean aesthetic to achieve a timeless design. Nebbia by Moen Spa Shower is available in four premium finishes to complement any bathroom, white and chrome, spot-resistant nickel, matte black and black and chrome. Friends, I am a shower hog. Baths are great, but I love a good shower. The water stays hot and doesn't get dirty. A warm shower at the end of the day is my treat to myself. It's one of the ways I unwind before crawling into bed. And Nebbia has made my routine even better. Because the one flaw in my shower plan is that I don't like to get my hair wet before I go to bed. But I also want a full shower, not like just a from-the-chest-down shower. Nebbia feels like a full shower. All that mist surrounds you. It's like standing in a cloud. They also offer accessories such as shower shelves, shower curtains, hooks, and bath mats, which pair perfectly with the shower design. I have the bath mat, which is a kind of a multicolor gray, goes with everything, and it doesn't show any dirt and is literally less dirty because it's antimicrobial. The Nevia by Moen Spa Shower starts at $199, and for with friends like these listeners, we have a deal. The first 100 people to use the code FRIENDS at Nebia.com will get 15% off all Nebia products. Nebia rarely does deals like this, so it's a great deal to jump on. Go to Nebia.com slash FRIENDS, that's N-E-B-I-A dot com slash FRIENDS to check out what they have to offer. The first 100 people to use the code FRIENDS when checking out will save 15% on all Nebia products. Again, that's Nebia.com slash FRIENDS. Use code FRIENDS at checkout to save 15%. With friends like these as brought to you by Public Goods, the one-stop shop for sustainable, high-quality, everyday essentials made from clean ingredients at affordable prices. Everything from coffee to toilet paper and shampoo to pet food, Public Goods is your new everything store thoughtfully designed for the conscious consumer. Rather than buying from a bunch of single product brands, Public Good members can buy all of their premium essentials in one place with one beautiful, streamlined aesthetic. Let me tell you two things I love about Public Goods. Number one, it's super easy, one-stop shopping that's not managed by a powerful virtual global monopoly, and two, it makes me happy to have all my stuff match. It just does. I read somewhere that we waste a little bit of brain energy every time we see advertising, every time we see a new brand, including stuff that's already on your shelves. Now, I don't know if that's actually true. I do know that I feel like my bathroom is more peaceful when it's not cluttered with a bunch of different shapes and sizes and colors of bottles. Public Goods ethically sources and obsessively develops each of their products to be free from unhealthy ingredients and harmful additives still common on drug and grocery store shelves. They're committed to making their products healthy and safe for humans and animals and the environment. They use a membership model that keeps costs low and pass on even more savings to their customers. Best of all, you can make your first purchase with no obligation. They plant one tree for every order placed and incorporate sustainability into every part of their company. Join hundreds of thousands of others who have switched to their new everything store. Now we've worked out an awesome deal just for with friends like these listeners. Receive $15, that's $15, off your first public goods order with no minimum purchase. That's right. They're so confident you will absolutely love their products and come back again and again. They're giving you $15 to spend on your first purchase. Plus right now, Receive a free pack of bamboo straws or reusable food storage wraps with your order. You have nothing to lose. Just go to publicgoods.com slash friends or use code friends at checkout. That is P-U-B-L-I-C-G-O-O-D-S dot com slash friends to receive $15 off your order. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Stamps.com. Stamps.com saves you time and money. What would you do with more time and money? Does it change from week to week? I'd say my constants are sleep more, go on more vacations, and sleep more on vacations. And Stamps.com is one tiny step towards that dream. Let's face it, taking trips to the post office is probably not how you want to spend your time, and that's why I recommend mailing and shipping online at Stamps.com. Stamps.com allows you to mail and ship anytime, anywhere, right from your computer, send letters, send packages, and pay a lot less with discounted rates from USPS, UPS, and more. Stamps.com has saved businesses thousands of hours and tons of money. With Stamps.com, you get the services of the post office and UPS all in one place, plus big discounts on mailing and shipping rates. You know a bonus way that Stamps.com has saved me money? Returning items I impulse bought online. Now, I try to be sensible, but sometimes those Instagram ads are just irresistible, and then the product does not, in fact, change my life. In the olden days, in the before times, returning something would mean a trip to the post office and I might decide it's not worth the hassle. Now I return things. It's money I wouldn't have without Stamps.com. Stamps.com brings the services of the U.S. Postal Service and UPS right to your computer. Stamps.com is a must-have for any business. Whether you're a small office sending out invoices, an online seller shipping out orders, or even a giant warehouse sending thousands of packages a day, Stamps.com can handle it all with ease. Simply use your your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send it. Once your mail is ready, just schedule a pickup or drop it off. It's that simple. With Stamps.com, you get discounts of up to 40% off post office rates and up to 62% off UPS shipping rates. Not to mention, Stamps.com is a fraction of the cost of those expensive postage meters. Stamps.com is a no-brainer. It saves you time and money. It's no wonder nearly 1 million small businesses already use Stamps.com. Stop wasting time going to the post office and go to stamps.com instead. There's no risk. With my promo code FRIENDS, you get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale, no long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in FRIENDS. That's stamps.com, promo code FRIENDS. Stamps.com, never go to the post office again. So I want to move on to another area of forgiveness that the different section of your book, which is about debt forgiveness. And I had never thought about the irony that you point out that's sort of a turning point of the book, which is that when it comes to debt forgiveness, you know, our society is great. I mean, not in all cases, but we have a very sophisticated approach to debt forgiveness that you could almost call restorative in some ways because there are levels and you have to take accountability.
0: Well, we do. And, uh, you know, I, I, I like to comment on the fact that the United States actually has in the Constitution a guarantee that there will be a federal capacity to uh, forgive debts. And I uh, think now a small part of it is that Thomas Jefferson had a hand in crafting the Constitution and he was in debt much of his life. Uh, and because he was Thomas Jefferson, he even developed a kind of political theory that one generation should not burden the next with its debts. Uh, and as a result, the United States has had a national bankruptcy system from the very start. And social scientists have studied uh, the United States and concluded that that's a contributing factor to the uh, the spirit of innovation. People are willing to take risks and fail in business, uh, in enterprise, in invention. Uh, and no small part of it is that the legal responsibilities, the debt responsibilities, are lesser here than they are in some other countries.
1: You b- made a point of mentioning companies uh, when we talked about bankruptcy, and it is, I think you know a plain truth that this country and our society has a much easier time forgiving companies for financial misbehavior.
0: Uh, recent uh, last uh, two rounds of reforms of the federal bankruptcy law had particularly onerous terms, in my view, for consumers with regard to credit card debt and for students with regard to student loans. Uh, when in fact, the credit card companies are busily trying to trick people into getting credit cards when they don't really um, have the ability to pay uh, that pay off the terms. And literally use uh, techniques that have been shown to be psychologically manipulative. Uh, and when students are caught in a swamp of adults pressing on them uh, debt, um uh, for me, the most poignant or ironic instance is that the for-profit uh, higher education institution that goes belly up and can declare bankruptcy has is holding the the debt. Or it incurred the debt for students who are not allowed to declare bankruptcy and wipe the slate clean. There's an equity there that is too painful for words.
1: I definitely agree. It. it I. I. Is this something that happened over time? By the way, because
0: it did. It did. And the exclusion of student debt is not something that was always true. Um, and you know, we could make the rules different. This is just legislation. We could make the rule quite different. And how about not allowing uh, bankruptcy uh, to be declared uh, at all uh, by a for-profit company that that took advantage of returning veterans, for example, which many of them have. Um, I think that there are policy decisions um, about the forgiveness represented uh, by bankruptcy that uh, really require a much more vigorous uh, understanding of what's fair and who's responsible. Um, and, and at the same time, you know, to recognize that someone's going to pay.
1: I asked whether or not our bankruptcy laws have gotten more punitive over time, because one thing I seem to notice in your book, and this applies, I think, to criminal justice as well as bankruptcy law, is that traditional forms of justice or forgiveness seem to be a more capacious than our modern system. Like I would almost argue we've gotten more cruel over time and I, I don't think a modern person would necessarily think that. We like to think of ourselves no, that was the brutal past. And now here we are in our sophisticated future. But am I I'm reading that right? No, it all
0: it depends it depends on your baseline. You know, Steven Pinker has a book that goes back millennial that you know there's less violence and maybe less cruelty, but if you want to talk you know in my lifetime have we gotten more more punitive uh when it comes to criminal sanctions and even who can declare bankruptcy the answer is uh, undeniable yes uh 2005 bankruptcy uh reforms in the united states were political judgments um and the 2000 and um uh, and five reform made judgments that made it much harder for uh many who previously had been able to take advantage of the law Uh, When it comes to criminal justice, I mean, there's so many complicated factors, but no small measure here is that politicians are rewarded for claiming they will be tough on crime more readily in the United States than they will do something else. This is beginning to change. It's beginning to change, you know, we have the recent round of elections of what are known as progressive prosecutors, but that's uh, after seriously 30, 40 years of people getting elected, claiming they're gonna be tough on crime. And I was recently just reading, and I hadn't really made this connection before, that when the Kerner Commission, uh, examining the the so-called race riots of the 1960s issued its report, there was a backlash and the backlash that report called for major investments financially in poor communities and in communities of color. The backlash was followed by this big uptick in punitiveness and in the arming of police with more military style uh, techniques of policing and much higher sentences um, and uh you know James Foreman Jr has a very important book about. How did it come to pass that the District of Columbia with leadership that was largely almost exclusively African-Americans participated in jacking up, increasing the sentences? And what was it about the zeitgeist and and again, the political incentives for those in office to do this, Um, which we now look back on as a a mistaken uh,
1: approach? And I want to kind of turn our attention to today, because one of the things that uh, chattering class seemed to uh, take into its mind, <laughs> collective mind, over the past four or five years is the idea that people have lost faith in institutions, Americans, I should say, uh, people of color, maybe for reasons that have been demonstrated to them over and over and over why they should not have faith in institutions but also there are these very you know angry white people who don't have faith in institutions um apparently again this is something we're told no they express it now they express it they don't believe in the election right they don't have faith in the election and you have this quote from Anthony Kennedy I'm going to wind this up back to this with it um, a people confident in their laws and institutions should not be ashamed of mercy And I read that and I was like, I think that's true. And oh my God, we're in so much trouble.
0: (laughs) You know, a a parent who's confident of uh, his or her authority is not uh, ashamed of mercy either. Um, And in fact, I do think that our punitive turn reflects a kind of insecurity. The, The trust. That you're talking about does have to be earned. You can't wave a magic wand and say, okay, trust Congress, trust your legislature, trust the banks. Um, but it can be earned. Uh, we have a media problem. You're doing your, your best to remedy it and give us some long form journalism. But we have a media problem of sound bites that have gotten shorter and shorter, and then people living in separate uh, media worlds, which contributes to the distrust. Um, but I do think. Um, lo- people trust their local governments much more than they do a remote one. And uh, we should actually learn from that. And there might be ways that some of the divisions that we talk about can be uh, tackled, whether it's with restorative justice or even truth commissions, or just people working together on uh, sea rise in their own towns uh, and 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 find ways to trust one another, and then maybe trust collective action.
1: Before we go, I want to ask you to turn the lens onto yourself, maybe, because you say in the acknowledgements that you don't consider yourself a very forgiving person. (laughs) So I'm curious why you think of yourself as not a very forgiving person and if that's changed at all in all the work that you've done on forgiveness.
0: (laughs) Thanks for that question. Uh, I, you know, I, I think I say that in part, I joke that I drive in Boston where I live and you, you know, it's hard to be forgiving here, uh, given the way people drive, but, uh, more seriously, you know, I think, uh, by evolution, human beings are, are, are arranged, we're organized to remember, uh, bad things more than good things and to hold grudges. And I've tried as I get older to be less of a grudge holding, uh, individual, And doing this research and seeing the power of forgiveness in people's lives has affected me. Um, The medical research that shows that you're just a less stressed person if you don't carry around those grudges. Um, And and the work that uh, people have really, really demonstrated, whether it's restorative justice or post-bankruptcy, that you can let go of even justified uh, grievances and build something better. Um, And that, that affects me personally. Sure.
1: I'm going to ask one more question. Have you had an experience with being forgiven?
0: Mm -hmm. I have, and it is a gift. Uh, it is a huge, uh, you know, welcoming, uh, reclaiming, rejoining. Um, so, uh, and I, I, when I give talks on this subject, I always ask people, have you ever forgiven? Have you ever been forgiven? And people are more likely to raise their hands that they have been forgiven. And it does, um, actually prompt some reflection about, are they forgiving enough? I think that we need to teach forgiveness. I think we need to teach apology giving this country right now, at least popular culture, we're not really good at this. They're all of these unapology apologies if someone was injured. Uh, You know, to actually give a real apology and actually pay amends, make amends, this this requires work and we need to socialize people and to to practice it.
1: Thank you so much for coming on the show, Martha. It was a fascinating conversation.
0: Thank you for having me. Thanks so much.
1: If there's one thing that Martha makes clear, it's that Western, white, outsider ideas about forgiveness and reconciliation can hurt more than harm when a community is coached into reconciliation. There is another way. Peace Direct is an organization that searches out and empowers local peace builders. They do not establish branch or offices or ship in staff. They find and work with people in the communities directly impacted by conflict with a focus on amplifying the voices of women. They support reintegrating former combatants as led by the community and tradition. You can support their work at peacedirect.org. There's a great big donate button at the top. That's peacedirect.org. And that is it for the show. We spoke with Harvard law professor Martha Minow, author of When Should the Law Forgive? If you want to dive deeper, she also has a book called Between Vengeance and Forgiveness, Facing History After Genocide and Mass Violence. But I assure you, she is fun at parties. My hope is that you've walked away with less of an understanding of forgiveness, at least for now. I hope we've made it a little more complicated and given you a different way of thinking about it. I know that I understand forgiveness less the more I know about it, and practicing it doesn't help much either. It's a black box of sorts, a gift that reveals itself only over time and in ways you can't predict. This show is a production of Crooked Media. It is produced by Allison Herrera with assistance from Izzy Margulies. This episode was engineered by Louis Lino. Whitney Pastrick tells me hard truths. (laughs) Lastly, There's been a lot of good news lately, and that is good. But I want to remind people that it's okay if good news doesn't make you feel better right away or for very long. We're still in the middle of a tragic experiment in endurance. And while things are better, you still have every right to be tired. So, remember, take care of yourselves.